You're listening to the teaching podcast of The Crossing Church. We exist so that the real you can have a daily encounter with the real Jesus in word and deed. For more information about our church, visit crossingparagold.com. Good morning. It is, uh, it's good to see you guys all here this weekend. And if you're joining online, thank you for joining us the way in which you can. This morning, we're going to be in one of the Psalms. We're going to see what God has in store for us. So if you have your Bible with you, you can open to Psalm 107. It's almost dead center of the Bible. Uh, Psalm 107. And if you have the, the Bible app, the Version Bible app, you can obviously read it there, but also you can navigate over to an events section of that app. And you can see additional notes that we put there every single week that go along with the sermon, just as a, a reminder of the resources there. So Psalm 107, it's it's a little long. It's like 43 verses. So I'm not going to read the entire thing, but I would ask you, uh, would you stand with me to honor God and honor his word as we read it this morning? Psalm 107. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord tell their story. Those he redeemed from the hand of the foe. Those he gathered from the lands, from the east and west, from north and south. Some wandered in desert wastelands, finding no way to a city where they could settle. They were hungry and thirsty and their lives ebbed away. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way to a city where they could settle. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for mankind. For he satisfies the thirsty and fills the hungry with good things. Now jump with me to the last verse, 43. Let the one who is wise heed these things and ponder the loving deeds of the Lord. So... Father, I feel a mixture of emotions as I approach your word this morning. I feel great joy and thanksgiving as I reflect on your loving kindness to me and to the people in this room. I feel shame because I've seen your faithfulness and still seen myself pursue anything outside of you that might satisfy me. And I feel sadness to know that we live in such a broken world where so many people, even in our one small city, I live in the first part of each of these stanzas right now, broken, desperate, in distress, not knowing to whom they should turn. So Father, I ask that you would use your words to remind the followers of Jesus in this room and watching online this morning, how you have already demonstrated your steadfast love to us through Jesus. Would you help us to take joy in our salvation stories so that we can tell our story to the people around us? We long to see you do miraculous work in people's lives who the world has given up on, their family's given up on them, and maybe they've given up on themselves. And so if they're in the room this morning, Father, would you meet them now and show that you've not given up? Before I even begin commenting on this passage, would you begin to transform hearts? Would you demonstrate your love to them? Help us to live lives of thanksgiving for your unfailing love. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You can be seated. So I don't have to tell you that we live in a broken and fallen world. If you've been around here long enough, you've heard us say that from the pulpit quite often. But more importantly, you know this by your own experience, your own eyes on the world. It's whether you've suffered by the hands of 
just simply living in a fallen world or the consequences of your own sin or you've suffered as a, a victim of someone else's sin, whether directly or indirectly. We, we all suffer through this life and I, I feel like it's safe to say that if you're not suffering right now, it's either because you just got out of a season of suffering or it's right around the corner. So almost exactly eight years ago, Sarah, my wife, and I were living in Kansas City. I was beginning my final semester of seminary. I had one whole class that was a week long. Uh, I was part-time at my church and full-time in a call center looking forward to a full-time job in ministry. And so I got this opportunity to interview for a job in central Arkansas, and I was Man, I was like right there. They were about to fly me down for like a vote, right? And then they called me and said, hey, we revisited like our requirements and we realized you don't have enough experience, so we're going to move on from you. I was like, cool. Uh, who's been turned down due to lack of experience around here? It's a lot of us. So I was pretty sad, dejected. And so I did what a lot of people do when you're sad and dejected. And I went shopping, right? So Sarah and I bought a house. Because if anything will make you happy in the moment of distress, it's a mortgage. So we buy this house. And I never would have said it explicitly, but I can guarantee I believed it uh, in my subconscious that somehow having this house would fulfill me. We were super excited and had godly ambitions. And yet, God seemed determined to get it into my head that these things outside of him cannot satisfy so we get this house. It's October 2013. And uh, it was about six weeks later after we bought our house, there was an extremely cold snap in Kansas City, and our furnace goes out. It gets down to 32 degrees in my house. Like, I'm afraid pipes are start to bust and things like that. Now, thanks to very generous family, we got past that as a, just a mere hiccup. Get a new furnace. We're, we're squared away. We're going again. Not too long after that, Prior to buying the house from a friend, we had agreed that he would do some electrical work for me uh, afterwards. And while he was doing this electrical work, he let two main wires on the outside where he was upgrading my panel touch that should not touch. And I was in the house when it surged. And I could feel the energy of the house surge. Luckily, almost nothing broke. Almost. The one thing that broke, you might think is trivial, but it was a dishwasher. But we had lived in an apartment for so long and had to wash dishes by hand for so long that a dishwasher felt like the height of luxury. So for that to break felt really dejecting. And it took way too long for it to get fixed by my friend. Not too long after that, I was driving to to pick up a friend for lunch. Uh, he's on staff at Williams uh, Baptist University. And they were in town to play a basketball game. And I always had lunch with him when he would come up to town. So I'm going to pick him up. And on the way... I get pulled over by a cop. Not that big a deal, right? Except that apparently a few years before that, I had also gotten pulled over by a cop, gotten a ticket, and forgot to pay it. So the cop graciously informed me that I had a warrant out for my arrest. You guys didn't know you hired a convict, did you? (laughs) Uh... So, but he was, he was actually super kind. He let me just follow him to the police station. All I had to do, pay my old ticket and I could go. The problem is police stations are, especially in Kansas City, only used to cash bonds and they didn't know how to use their debit card machine. So it took like four hours for me to pay my ticket. So we buy this house in October and in about six months, a bunch of annoying little ticky tacky things are happening to us. It's like, whatever, it's just life, right? But then in May... 
2014. I came home from work. Come in my back door, kitchen. My dog greets me. It's an 11-pound poodle. I walk through to the dining room. I see an Amazon package on the table, and it's kind of ripped open haphazardly. And I'm like, what the heck was Sarah doing? I walk into the living room, and that's when I notice that we've been robbed. Every piece of valuable we had, which was not much, but it was all gone. They, you know, took plants and just threw them across the room and like shattered pots and things like that. It's one of the hardest conversations I had to tell, have with my wife when she got home from work uh, a few hours later. Now to be robbed feels violating, right? I don't know if you've ever experienced that. Like to go back in your home and imagine someone I don't know was walking through this house, taking whatever they wanted. You feel so violated. And also you find out that an 11 pound poodle is a terrible guard dog. Now, maybe you're like we were, um, and you have a nice pretty sign somewhere in your house, probably by your back door while you're on your way to your car. It's got hooks on it where you can put all your keys. They took all of our spare keys. So we had our house rekeyed, we had our older car rekeyed, but we had a car that was a, a little bit newer and had electronic key things. It was going to cost a thousand dollars to rekey. And we said, not yet. We had a garage, we could park it in, we're safe. One month to the day after I was robbed, I, for the first time in a month, parked my car in the driveway. And they came back. I was actually, it was a Sunday morning. I was leaving my house on my way to, to go to work. And I was like, where's my car? My car had been stolen. So you want to talk about feeling violated, knowing that someone has been coming by your house every single night for a month. We thought that life could not get any worse. Becoming homeowners was supposed to fix everything in our lives. And thus far, we had experienced the worst year of our lives. So July comes around and we had planned to come to Arkansas to go to actually that same friend who came to Kansas City to visit us. I was coming down for his wedding and uh, we got to come a couple days early because Sarah had a kid in her preschool drop kick a basketball into her head and give her a concussion. Uh, it was actually a providential timing of that trip. Uh, that same week, so we came down on like a Thursday, that same week on like Tuesday, my mom uh, started feeling sick. She went to the clinic. She thought she had the flu or something. And uh, they pretty quickly knew that, that it was not the flu. So they sent her to the hospital. So it's providential that I was back in town, a rarity, uh, to be able to sit with my mom, my sister, as we had no idea what was causing my mom to be sick. It was a couple days after we made it back to Kansas City that she was diagnosed with leukemia. And we looked to treatment for her with a lot of positivity. Um, but it was not God's will to heal her in the ways we asked. Because it was less than three months, almost exactly a year after we bought our house, my mom passed away. So preaching her funeral was one of the most difficult tasks I've ever done. From October 2013 to October 2014, when my mom passed away, Sarah and I were in a progressively increased state of distress. Started with little ticky tacky things and ended with something that no one wants. I look out today, still learning many of your stories, but I can look out and see people who I know have been in the midst of distress. I know what you've gone through. 
I know that there are people who are in it right now. I know there are people who actually feel awkward to come to church right now, so they're only watching online because they're in the midst of distress. And I can look out to every single one of us and say, distress is around the corner for us. So where is our hope? Living in a world where that is so broken that sickness can come and just change your life and everyone who loves you life in an instant, where's our hope? Living in a world where other people's sin can hurt and traumatize you for so long and so badly, where is our hope? Living in a sin where my own sin can damage myself and others, where's our hope? So my prayer is as we look at Psalm 107, that you'll feel hope afresh. The psalm begins with one of the most common refrains in the psalms when it says, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord tell their story. The psalm is generic enough that there's some debate about when it was written, but a good consensus is it was after the Israelites were captives in Babylon, which is the height of their distress as a nation. By calling them the redeemed, the psalmist is telling us that they're the ones that God has saved. The psalmist says that they should tell their story, which is God's love story. So Psalm 107, we only read a portion of it, but we'll cover most of it. It's a series of short stories. These stories are four different pictures of the ways in which God redeems or rescues his people. They all have the same rhythm, which is going to be our structure as we go through Psalm 107 this morning. So each of these little sections, which is probably divided in your uh, your Bible, you're, you're going to see a description of their distress for a verse or two. You're going to see a cry out to God. You're going to see God's deliverance. And then you're going to see um, a instruction for Thanksgiving. So distress, cry, deliverance, and Thanksgiving. As we walk through them, see if you can identify with the root feelings of any. So the first story starts in verse 4. It describes the people that are lost, wandering, looking for a city. The feelings the psalmist is trying to evoke are fear. Because being out in the wilderness, you're in constant danger. In a city in those days, the great walls and the gates provide you some level of safety and comfort. And that's what they're missing. That's what they're desiring. You can see that they're also hungry and thirsty because they're just wandering. They don't have a consistent source of food or drink. And then NIV says that their lives ebbed away, which is to say they were on the brink of death. Fear and loneliness can make you feel hopeless. The second short story starts in verse 10. It describes the people that are locked in prison. They're in chains and what seems like total isolation in darkness. Imagine not only that you're in jail, but you've been placed in solitary confinement. And this was due to their rebellion and sin. And they would be feeling loneliness, shame, sadness, guilt, anger, you name it. Guilt and shame, those emotions can certainly make us feel hopeless. Well, the third short story begins in verse 17. It describes a sick people, which the NIV refers to as fools. Because this sickness is a result of pursuing sin, rebelling against God. So you can think of the effects of addiction. Food was loathed by them, 
So can you imagine a sickness that makes you so incredibly hungry and yet the one thing that will nourish you is like putrid to you. This brought them near to death. Cycles of addiction can certainly make you feel hopeless. And then finally, our fourth short story describes the people who are out to sea simply doing their work, right? But one commentator pointed out that Israelites didn't often pursue jobs where they're going to be out to the big seas, right? Fishermen, sure. Small boats, sure. But to be out on a ship at sea, nah, not going to do it. So these Israelites are just out doing their work, but they're out doing a work probably for a king that is not theirs. And so they're doing a work that they do not want to do. They do not love. They loathe it. So in the best of circumstances, they're doing a job they don't want. But verses 25 to 27 describe a terrible, and I mean terrible storm. Their ship is going up, 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 up to the heavens and then crashing down to the depths. They are terrified. Their courage is melting. They're wobbling around like they're drunk. They could be as skilled a sailor as possible. And yet you feel totally out of control against the the works of God like that. Again, you feel hopeless there. So the, the psalmist knows of distress. You know of distress. You may not be lost in the wilderness, but you know fear and loneliness. You may not be in chains physically, or you might, but you know shame and guilt. You may not be in the middle of a terrible storm, but you know the fear of being out of control. Distress will come. Whether it's the natural effects of living in a fallen world, the consequences of your sin, or as a victim of someone else, we're going to walk through God's invitation to you when it comes. So if you're not in the midst of it, you have to know that it's going to come. Distress will find you. This is the case even if you're a follower of Jesus. So if you're in the midst of distress right now and you're like, if I follow Jesus, things are going to get all peachy. Like, that's not the case. Scripture actually tells us that because you are a Christian, you may experience suffering. So you cannot shield yourself from it. You cannot shield your children from it. But you can prepare yourself. You can prepare your children. So we'll look again at Psalm 107 to see what you can do in the midst of your distress. But first, when life is coming at you from all angles, when you do find yourself in distress, where do you go? Where do you turn to? Do you try to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and work harder? Do you seek comfort after disappointment by going shopping like I did? Do you say in the midst of your trouble that I deserve something good? I deserve this thing that I want and go out and seek illicit sex or Abuse, alcohol, or drugs? Do you lose control of your anger? I know I can't be the only one here who looks to things or people to satisfy me, to rescue me in the midst of distress when only God can. So reflect back over your life, maybe over the past week. When you've been in the midst of distress, what have you clung to? I know we have a temptation to grab anything that's tangible, and that's why we're going after these things. So, Listen to uh, the lyrics of a song by a guy named Tim Meadows. Adam Breckenridge actually shared this song with us a, a couple weeks ago, and it instantly was like, oh, this feels perfect. Tim Meadows' song, Sideways, which he describes what happens when you try to suppress your feelings that come in the moments of distress. He says, And it came out through the bottle. It came out through my fists. It came out way too early. I wish it never did. Push it down, it comes out sideways. Bitter roads turn into highways. Push it down, it comes out sideways. 
And it comes out in my silence, sometimes unwanted tears. Comes out disguised as anger, but it's really fear. So Meadows knows that you're going to have these fears, this sadness, loneliness that comes from the distress of our lives. And if you try to push the feelings down and say, I can't let anybody see, or the feelings are bad, and I'm like, I just need to push it down, it will come out, but often it'll come out what he calls sideways. And later he says, over and over and over, push it down, it comes back up. Push it down, it comes back up. Push it down, it comes back up. So when you push down the feelings that you have in the midst of your distress, do you experience them coming back up out of your control? So, if self-medication or pursuing comfort or pleasure cannot adequately deal with your distress, if pushing down your emotions is only going to temporarily solve your problems, what do you need to do when you're in the midst of distress? Psalm 107 repeats the exact same phrase for each of these short stories. So after describing their distress in verses 6, 13, 19, and 28, it says, Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. They cried out to the Lord. This doesn't say that they said one prayer to God and moved on. A cry shows urgency. It shows passion. It shows faith. It actually demonstrates your helplessness. You need someone. Think of a child crying because they need someone. When you're in the midst of distress, this psalm instructs you to cry out to the Lord. The only one who can deliver you. And in each of these stories, the same verse where they cried out to the Lord, it says that he delivered them from their distress. They're in very specific, tangible, but temporal circumstances. And he delivered them from them. You, you can see it in each of the following verses after that. So they cried to the Lord. He delivered them. It's so quick. It's in the same verse. And then in a couple of verses that follow each of them, you can see he led those wandering people to a city. He broke away the chains of the people who were in prison. He healed those who were sick, those foolish people who were sick. And he stilled the storm for the sailors. He delivered them. Now I want to point out four things quickly about the deliverance that we see in Psalm 107. So first, God is able. You can see that God alone has the power to deliver the Israelites out of their distress. And the same is true for you today. And the best part is that he desires to deliver you. He's not doing it reluctantly. And I only have time to, to read a portion of it. A whole sermon could be preached on the verses that follow each of these uh, short stories. But in verses 33 to 42, let me read what the psalmist says. He, describing God, he turned the desert into pools of water, the parched ground into flowing springs. There he brought the hungry to live, and they founded a city where they could settle. They sowed fields and planted vineyards that yielded a fruitful harvest. He blessed them, and their numbers greatly increased, and he did not let the herds diminish. God is able. Second, while God does care about your temporal circumstances, and he may deliver you out of those if it's negative, his deliverance is motivated by a restoration of your relationship with him first and foremost. If God delivers you from temporal circumstances, but not ultimate spiritual salvation, restoration of relationship to him, if he does not save you there, being saved from your temporary circumstance is of no use. All right, third, 
Deliverance from your circumstance is not always immediate. There are surely miracles that occur, but more often than not, God wants to work through the process of getting you back. Those lost in the wilderness still had to walk to the city where they could settle. Those who were healed from sickness still likely had a period of time where they're rebuilding physical strength. Those that were in the sea still needed to be guided back to the shore. He may deliver you, and yet you still have to walk the road of recovery from addiction the rest of your life. Or serve a sentence for a crime that you committed. God is in the process, even if it takes longer than you think it should. Fourth, remember that two of the four stories, the situations people are in distress is because of their sin. They were consequences. God himself was putting on them. And he is the only one who can deliver you from his consequences. Your sin is offensive to God. And yet he is faithful to forgive those who earnestly seek him. And here's this the best part. His deliverance in that way is instant. Unlike your temporary circumstances where you have the rest of your life to get through it, When you trust in Jesus, it's instant. You don't have to prove yourself worthy of his love. You see, these circumstances that God delivered the Israelites out of are all precursors to the ultimate deliverance through Jesus. Isaiah 53, 6 says, We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. So in John 14, 6, Jesus says in response to that, I am the way. If you're spiritually lost, and wandering, looking for a city to dwell in safely, if you are still astray, Jesus is the way to salvation, to safety, to communion, to relationship. If you're hungry and thirsty for more in life, you're always wanting more, he calls out and says, I am the bread of life. Uh, Anyone who drinks from my cup will never be thirsty again. And he doesn't mean like actually physically thirsty. He means those things that you're longing after. If you'll look to him to satisfy those, You'll never thirst again. Jesus set prisoners free spiritually by taking the punishment on himself, serving the sentence that we all deserve, paying our penalty for us. Throughout the Gospels, the thing we see Jesus doing most often is healing people left and right. He healed sickness, physical deformities. He raised the dead. But ultimately, the sickness that we all need healing from is not physical, but rather spiritual. He alone can provide that for you. So do you need deliverance from your current circumstance? Maybe. Probably. Does God care about your temporary circumstances in life right now? Absolutely. But ultimately, if your circumstances were flipped, if you had the job you longed for, if you broke the addiction that you despise in yourself, if you had all the money that you could fathom or got the girl that you think will make you happy, If whatever it is that you dream about came true, but you didn't have Jesus, you will have greater distress around the corner. Spiritually speaking, if you are lost and never found, if you're in prison and have to finish out your sentence yourself, if you are sick without a doctor to heal you, if you're at sea being tossed to and fro, then you have every reason to fear. But the hope of the gospel is that if you will cry out to the Lord in your trouble, he is faithful to deliver you. Not so that you can run right back to the thing that put you in that circumstance, but so that you can pursue a relationship with the one who saved you. This hope is possible only through Jesus. Jesus is the one man who cried out in sincerity. 
But he was not delivered from dying on the cross for you. For him to, to be delivered from his distress in the moment in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before he died, for him to be delivered means that you cannot be delivered. So for him to stay in his distress by his own choice is the only way he can lift you out of your distress. So how do you respond when you know that truth? Every short story found in Psalm 107 says this. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for mankind. The natural reaction to being saved is gratitude, overwhelming thankfulness. Maybe you're like me and you get so focused on your present circumstance or so concerned and worried about the future that you're too distracted to focus on how God has already acted in your own story. I think Psalm 107 gives us some helpful tips for how to live lives of thankfulness. So first, one of the ways in which you remember that his love endures forever is to remember your own story. In verse 2, the psalmist exhorts them to tell their story. So the psalmist is exhorting you to tell your story. If you've been redeemed by God for your own benefit, tell your story to those around you. Secondly, if you're in the midst of distress right now, cry out to God. If it's physical healing that you need, God's word tells you to cry out to him. If you're spiritually lost, the exhortation to you is to cry out to him. Remember, this is God's word. The God who created the universe, the God who knit you together, this is his word. It's not just some song in the Bible that's like inspirational. It is God's word to you. And he says, if you cry out to me, I will deliver you. Which leads us to our third way to live lives of thankfulness. The final instruction in verse 43 says, let the one who is wise heed these things and ponder the loving deeds of the Lord. The testimony of this book and the experience of Christians for 2,000 years is that Jesus walked out of the tomb. He demonstrated that he alone has the power to save your soul. So take this book, which is his story, his love story for you, and meditate on his word. My fourth way is this, and this is one that we probably most often neglect due to our discomfort. Take the hope of this good news. Take the truth of this story. Take the truth of your story to the people in our city who are in distress right now. Be proactive in your mission personally and if you're in the missional community. The truth uh, of the psalm, of this psalm, is the only way that we made it through the hardest year of our life. Did God do everything the way I wanted him to? Of course not. Did God do everything the way I needed him to? Yes. He sustained me because I know he's faithful. Like Paul says in Romans 8, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. The best way here at the crossing to consistently tell your story to people around you, to hear other people's story and be encouraged by that, the best way to be reading scripture with fellow believers, to be on mission in our city, to have people around you, to constantly point to you, to cry out to God when you're in the midst of distress, is to be in a missional community. I want to share with you one final action step for you to demonstrate your thankfulness to God. So every week here, we take communion. 
Because it's a tangible reminder of what Jesus has done for us. We live in a world that every single day tells you you can do it on your own. Or this thing over here is going to satisfy you. So we need, at the very least, a weekly reminder that Jesus alone can deliver me out of my distress. So if you trust in Jesus to be the only way back to God, if you see him as your Lord, if you can honestly say, he's the only one who can deliver me, then I invite every Christian here to take part in communion. The way we do now is in your seat, you would have a cup. And then the top is a wafer. And you could pull that back, take that as Jesus' body, his life broken for you. And then peel it back further to take the juice that's inside and see that as Jesus' life, his death shed for you. If you're not a believer in Jesus, though, if you're like just here to be at an event, if you wouldn't say that this is true, if you don't have faith that God can deliver you out of your distress, we're extremely glad that you're here. But this isn't for you. This isn't even very good anyway. Um, sorry. I, I would say don't, don't take part in this. This isn't going to help you. What I would encourage you to do is to pursue Jesus.